Writer David Lodge in his book, Souls and Bodies, penned these words, quote, at some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one could say for certain when this happened. First it was there, then it wasn't. Different people became aware of the disappearance of hell at different times. Some realized that they had been living for years as though hell did not exist without having consciously registered its disappearance. Others realized they had been behaving out of habit as though hell was still there, though in fact they had ceased to believe in its existence long ago. End quote. Historian Martin Marty summarized the situation succinctly, quote, Hell disappeared, no one noticed. What makes this stunning is that hell, the belief in eternal punishment for those who do not know the Lord, has been a fixture of Christianity, and I would say by extension, a fixture of Western civilization that has been so influenced by Christianity. You say, well, how on earth did this happen that there's been such a radical shift in the last generation or two? Well, for one thing, many theological institutions long abandoned the doctrine of hell. In the last few centuries, uh, many theological institutions have basically kind of given up the supernatural element, denying things uh, that are of a miraculous nature, like Jesus' resurrection. And of course, things that are troublesome and challenging, those things have also been jettisoned. And of course, hell was one of the first things to go. As these institutions trained future generation of Christians' leaders, it was inevitable that much of the church would follow. And as the church changed its stance on hell, the general public gladly accepted it. And the result is where we stand today. Now you might say, Pastor, I read that uh, 58% of the public believes in hell. Yes, a 2014 survey by Pew Research affirmed that fact. But I would urge you not to be fooled by that number. The public's view of hell is much different than the biblical picture. In other words, I think most people would say that hell is for those who are incredibly, radically evil. People like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or really cold-blooded, murderous people. When the average person dies, it is assumed that they are in a better place, heaven. However, Jesus declares in Matthew 7 that only few go to heaven. Our society may have shifted, but God has not. Indeed, Jesus teaches more about hell than any other person in the Bible. And without the notion of final judgment the message of Christianity basically disappears. If we say that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but there is no final punishment, it's not exactly clear what is He saving us from. And this isn't just theological debate, but I think it has a huge impact on how we live our Christian lives, whether or not we are truly committed to the great commission of making disciples of all nations, meaning we press forward and we tell them about the good news. But if we abandon the doctrine of final judgment again, what is the motive of the great commission? So this passage is very important that we're going to be looking at here today. It's a very sober truth, but it is one that the church absolutely must regain if it is going to be faithful to the Great Commission, if it is going to be faithful and firm and committed to follow Jesus as disciples 
of Christ. As a church, we need to stand on the Word of God and not pick and choose the passages and the teachings that we like best. Amen? Amen. We have to stand and teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. So please let me invite you to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, to situate ourselves in Revelation, we're in between the trumpet judgments that ended in chapter 11 and the bowl judgments that begin in chapter 16. And in these chapters, there's seven visions that John receives here of of underlying spiritual realities that kind of affect everything that we're seeing in our world. Kind of a veil is pulled back and we're given a glimpse of these underlying realities. And so we've seen three visions so far. Revelation 12 described how Satan sought to destroy Jesus but failed. He was defeated at the cross. Praise God for that. We rejoice. But we also saw that he is confined to this earth. He knows that final judgment is coming for him one day. He knows his time is short and he's filled with rage and anger. And so as we saw in chapter 13, he enlists two agents to carry out his business, so to speak. We saw how he rose up a beast of the sea, which is symbolic of the government opposition, political opposition to the church. And then last time we saw how he utilizes the beast of the earth, often called the false prophet later in the book of Revelation. So as the the first beast symbolized political opposition to the church, the second beast symbolizes religious opposition to the church. Today we're going to cover three more visions, the entirety of chapter 14. And once again, we're going to see how it concludes with the return of Christ. This is a pattern in Revelation. We've seen how there's different angles of, and, and elements about the return of Christ and what's going to happen when he returns, different things that take place. And today's focus is going to be on the sober reality of final judgment. So if you're with me, let's turn to Revelation 14. We're going to read the first part of our passage, which is the Lamb and the 144,000. Let's read verses 1 to 5 together. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a hundred and forty thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed for mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." So here in this vision, the scene shifts from earth to heaven, and the characters shift from the dragon and the two beasts to the lamb and the 144,000. Of course, the lamb is Jesus, who died for our sins to atone for our sins as the perfect sacrifice. The 144,000, I believe, represent the people of God from all ages, and they have the name of the lamb and the name of God written on their foreheads. And this, of course, stands in stark contrast to what we saw in chapter 13, where it talked about the mark of the beast that was written on the, on the foreheads of those who follow 
the beast. As I said last week, I believe in both cases, it's a symbolic mark, not a literal mark. It's a, it's a way of showing possession and protection that God's people are protected by him. They're, they're, they're not going to have to be concerned of ultimately what happens to them, regardless of what Satan and the beast are trying to do, because they have been sealed and protected by the Lord. Now, in verses 2 to 3, John heard a voice from heaven that sounded like the roar of many waters and thunder. In other words, this voice was very, very loud. And it was not only loud, but it was joyful, as indicated by the, the mention of the harpist, right? They were celebrating. They were playing harps. This was a, a sign of celebration. They were rejoicing. And so they're singing loud and singing joyfully. Notice that it says they're singing before the throne. So this is a vision of heaven. This isn't what is taking place on earth right now, but this is a vision of heaven of the redeemed singing this song. And notice how it says they sing a new song. And it's a song that only they know. This is a song of redemption. The angels might know about it, but they have not experienced, right? First Peter talks about how the angels look into these things. They have been uh, servants of God, but they never fell like humanity did and experienced the redemption that comes through the salvation of Jesus. And so these redeemed are singing this new song. And by the way, if I may... We should sing the same way on earth when we gather together. We should sing loud. We should sing loud. Not quietly, sheepishly, murmuring. We should sing loud. And we should sing joyfully. Notice he doesn't say you have to sing beautifully. Some of us will get ruled out of that one, right? But you just have to sing joyfully. Sing joyfully. And friend, if you don't have a heart to want to come in here and sing with joy, something's the matter. The check engine light is going off. You've been given the greatest gift in the universe, the gift of salvation. And if we can't come in here with a desire to want to sing and praise God, something is wrong. I know we might all have a bad Sunday or once in a while where we're kind of coming in and discouraged and so forth. But if time after time you find yourself saying, I'm not really here to sing. I'm not really here to praise God. Maybe I was here to learn a few things about the Bible. Check engine light is going off. When we have truly been redeemed, we want to praise him. Praise Him. And if we're down and discouraged, that's exactly why we come here. To be reminded of God's great love for us and how we're building our foundation upon Him. In verses 4 to 5, John mentions three characteristics about the redeemed. First, he says they are virgins. Now, some interpret this in a physical sense of John is speaking of, of strictly male virgins, since he mentions defiling themselves with women. That's possible, but I think John is speaking spiritually here. Why do I say that? Well, Scripture does not say that marriage defiles a person. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul says that that this is false teaching, that marriage defiles. Paul says that that kind of teaching is actually the doctrine of demons. So I think instead he's speaking about the church's purity in the face of worldly temptations. Just a few verses down, we're going to read about Babylon, who is called the great prostitute. She is symbolic of worldly idolatry and temptations. So those who are part of the redeemed, they don't give their allegiance to Babylon. Yes, they stumble and fall along the way, but their greatest allegiance is to the Lord, and they seek to remain pure. 
also says they follow the Lamb. Their, their lives are marked by obedience. And also that says they do not lie. Now, he may be talking about the simple fact that as believers, we want to be truthful in all that we say, but he also might have a deeper meaning in here because sometimes you see in Scripture where it talks about idolatry is connected with lying because you see false gods. Ultimately, if you're pointing to them and looking to them, it's, a, it's just a matter of lying because they don't exist. It says in Isaiah chapter 44, the Lord says to the idol worshiper, a deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So the redeemed are those who are pure, seeking the Lord, obeying him and staying away from idols. Second part of our passage is these angelic announcements. In verses 6 to 13, we read about three angelic announcements. Let's read about the first angel. He said, it says there, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So this first angel, he flies in the sky and he declares the eternal gospel. It's eternal because the plan of salvation has been in place before the world ever began. And now it's just unfolding. But it is an eternal gospel. And the angel warns them to fear God and to glorify him because the time of judgment has arrived. People here are being summoned to worship the creator. Second angel comes along in verse 8 and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So we've not been introduced fully to Babylon so far in Revelation. She showed up subtly in chapter 11. Remember when it talked about the fall of the great city? Later Babylon is called the great city or Babylon the great. Babylon's really going to come into focus in chapter 17 to 19. But as John likes to do this, he gives a little foreshadowing of what's going to come. And so Babylon, I believe, is not an actual city, but it symbolizes this world system that promotes greed and idolatry and immorality and persecutes the church. And as it says there, Babylon has corrupted the nations of the world and now stands judged. The third angel appears and says, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So angels, as we've seen in Revelation, they're often agents of judgment, and it's fitting for them to give this final warning. They declare if you worship the beast, meaning you give the beast your allegiance, your time, your resources... What does it say there? You will face God's wrath. In fact, you will drink the wine of God's wrath. And the wine is poured full strength. It's not diluted. Often in these days, they would take wine and they would put water into it to kind of spread it out to dilute it. But here, when it comes to God's wrath, it is not diluted. And it's poured into the cup of God's anger. And Scripture often depicts God's wrath like a cup that one drinks down. 
Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So John gives this very vivid kind of double image of undiluted divine wrath poured into a cup of God's anger. And as a result, it says there, people are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Their torment never ceases. They never rest. Now, some Christians reject this teaching and believe what is called annihilationism. They argue that people suffer for a while, but that eventually God annihilates them so that they no longer exist at all. I think a lot of times there's well-meaning in this view, but the view is not biblical. In Revelation, if you go back to that verse that says the, the phrase forever and ever, just for example, that phrase, that phrase forever and ever appears 13 times in the book of Revelation. Sometimes it refers to God who exists forever and ever, or it refers to God's reign, which exists forever and ever. When we read about that, we don't think God is going to cease to exist in the future, do we? Or we don't think God's reign is going to stop at some point in the future. We understand that it continues forever and ever. Likewise, punishment is forever and ever. It does not stop. Moreover, Jesus affirms this teaching clearly emphatically. He says in Matthew 25, 46, for example, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus uses the word eternal in the same sentence to speak of eternal life and eternal punishment. I never hear anybody ever question whether eternal life is going to cease for the believer. But the same word is used to describe eternal punishment. So I think Scripture is clear in what it teaches. Now, of course, when we hear this, it's natural for for us to ask, why does it go on forever? As you wrestle with that question, let me just give you two points to consider. First, all of God's attributes are infinite. His love. His power, His wisdom is just infinite. There's no end to it. It's indescribable, right? But we only have a problem with God's justice being infinite. No one gets upset about the infinite love of God that was willing to die on the cross for our sin. I've never heard people struggle with the infinite goodness of God that allows us to enjoy the new creation forever. But we stumble upon his justice. And I would just challenge us to think that perhaps we struggle with this because we are sinful and do not grasp the evil of our sin like God does. In other words, our sin doesn't really bother us the way that it should. And my life is riddled with sin. Your life is riddled with sin. And so how can we be in a place 
to stand over God and to judge him when we are so compromised and tainted by sin? Just something for you to consider. A second thing, too, is that people in hell will more than likely continue to sin. They will remain in a state of rebellion, thus being punished for sins in this life and in the afterlife. If you skip a little bit ahead in Revelation 22, 11, it says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. So in other words, the righteous are going to continue in the new creation to still be righteous, to follow after the Lord. But the evildoer continue in their ways. They're not going to repent, but are going to continue the trajectory that they started in this life and will continue this forward into the afterlife and will thus incur God's judgment for the rest of eternity. So it's in a sense a choice that they continue to make to rebel. Now this part of the passage concludes with a, with a word for the saints to endure. It says in verses 12 to 13, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So church, it says there that the saints are those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So we are those who see Jesus as both Lord and Savior. Sometimes Christians will say that we can believe in Jesus as our Savior, but not really our Lord. But is that what that says there? It says he's both. Now, that doesn't mean that we keep his commandments perfectly. None of us can do that or do do that. But there should be a desire, right, to want, or to, want to obey what Jesus has told us to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we're going to try to endure in that as well. And in the context in this very sober passage here about final judgment, I think what the point is that John is trying to communicate is that we should let the reality of final judgment motivate us. Following Christ does require sacrifice. You will face opposition, as we've just been reading about in chapter 13. But what you endure in this life is nothing compared to the reality of final judgment. And so if you decide, hey, I'm going to go forsake Christ, consider this. Consider what you're leaving behind. Consider what you're facing. And let that motivate you to stay Faithful to what the Lord has called us to do, to keep his commands and to believe in Jesus. Final part of our passage is the great harvest. It speaks of a great harvest for both Christians and non-Christians when Jesus returns. It's one great event. And to start, Christians are harvested from the earth. Let's read about it in verses 14 to 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to, for the hour to reap has come, for the, hour, excuse me, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So start off by saying, who's the one seated on the cloud? Well, notice it says that he is described, right? He's described like one, uh, like a son of man, which matches, of course, what Daniel says in 7, 
600 years before Jesus ever came, talks about one like a son of man who receives all power and authority to reign. Jesus comes on the scene. What does he call himself? The son of man, right? So that's Jesus we're speaking of here, and he has a sickle in his hand. And a sickle, of course, was used in these days to harvest grain, harvest wheat, and so forth. And so an angel tells Jesus to harvest because the earth is ripe. So what does that all symbolize? Well, some say it's, it's a symbol of judgment here, but I don't think so right here. I think it's a symbol of salvation. Nothing negative is said here in this passage about the harvest, this harvest. Jesus rescues believers from the destruction that is coming to this earth. He says similarly in Matthew 24, he predicted his return like this. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It's kind of an encouraging thought to know. That, you know, if you die, you're going to go and be with the Lord. And if you happen to be on earth when things are running amok here and it's the very end of time, that there is an angel with your name on it somewhere and he is going to come and scoop you up out of the destruction that's coming to earth. You're in good hands. But then we read about the other element of the great harvest, the harvest with non-Christians. Verses 17 to 20 says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So I think this harvest is different than the first harvest that focused on wheat. When the angel harvests, he throws the grapes into the great winepress of the wrath of God. We saw earlier a metaphor for God's judgment, the cup, right? Here we see another metaphor, the winepress. In the Old Testament, a wine press was symbolic of God's judgment. For example, Joel 3.13 says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So just as grapes are crushed in a wine press, so too sinners will be crushed by the justice, this overwhelming justice of God on judgment day. Finally, it says the wine press is trod outside of the city. I think this means outside of the new Jerusalem, which is speaking of the new creation. In other words, this judgment that takes place is not going to be in our midst, so to speak, but what other places are called in Scripture, hell or the lake of fire. This is where this judgment takes place. And this passage closes with just really uh, vivid imagery about blood flow going up to a horse's bridle, which was common language of the day to talk about warfare and so forth. It was hyperbole, I think, to describe just utter devastation and the blood flows for 1,600 stadia, which is equivalent to 200 miles. Again, I think it's probably hyperbole hyperbole just to talk about the, the breadth of devastation here when Jesus returns. And I think this is a snapshot. It's a foreshadowing of what we're going to read in Revelation 16, 17, and 19, and 20, what 
many people would call the Battle of Armageddon, when the Antichrist and his armies will launch sort of this worldwide final great persecution against the church and have great success for a season. But then Jesus returns and he harvests the earth. He harvests his people and he also has a harvest of those whom he does not know. Very powerful passage. Let me just give us three questions as we close. Simple but direct. First, is the justice of God firmly fixed in your heart? We are to know and to worship God as he is. Not who we want to make him to be. Let God be God, amen? Amen. Let God be God. And let us bend our hearts to Scripture, not bend Scripture to our hearts. That is idolatry. Let God be God and trust that He is fully right in all that He does. And though we can't fathom His justice, we know that the judge of all the earth will do right. Second, are you ready for judgment day? You know, the wrath of God is a fearful thing. On the night before the cross, Jesus, who was always implacable in the face of crowds and oppositions and death threats and all these things, it was the only time that Jesus was ever shaken. He was shaken because he knew what faced him on the cross, didn't he? He dreaded what he called the cup. He said, Father, may your cup pass from me. He was crushed. He knew what he was about to face. And he wanted it to pass, but out of great love for us, he went to the cross to take our punishment. Friend, we cannot save ourselves. Why would Jesus go through this? Was it a show? Or is this the only way to be saved? The only way to avoid punishment that we see here is to repent of our sins and to believe Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. And if that's never happened in your life, let me urge you today to lay aside your pride. Lay aside your pride and think you're going to earn it yourself or you have it all together. Sometimes it's said said that hell is a monument to our pride. Humble yourself today. And let me also urge you, maybe if this is your situation, to lay aside apathy. Stop making more excuses and thinking there's always another occasion. There's plenty of time. Or I'll do this kind of thing later in life. I I saw a, a good image uh, here recently this kind of portrays how we're often so busy making excuses do we have that image okay too young to seek god too independent to seek god too happy to seek god too busy to seek god too tired to seek god too late to seek god So one day it will be too late. 
We all deserve punishment. But Christ has made a way of salvation. Praise God. He has made a way, not something that you and I do. He makes a way. Embrace him today. Be ready for that day. And then lastly, my last question, what are you doing to rescue others from judgment? Jesus spoke forcefully about judgment day. But what's so powerful about Jesus is that he was broken about others. He wept over Jerusalem. Church, we need to be broken about the judgment that people face. When is the last time that you and I have genuinely been broken about the salvation of our friends, families, and neighbors? Weaved over them to come to know Christ. Weaved over wondering what might happen to them if they were to die today or if Jesus were to return. We should be broken and that brokenness should lead to fervent prayer and should lead to us sharing the gospel. And yes, sharing when it's uncomfortable. It's not comfortable to share the gospel sometimes, is it? We know that there might be disappointments. We know that there might be pushback. But friend, sometimes the illustration is given. If you're walking down the road and you see your neighbor's house on fire, you don't just keep on walking, do you? You go up to your neighbor and you bang on the door and say, look, your house is on fire. And if we do this in a natural way, why would we not want to do it about the most ultimate things of all? And when we do share, yes, we share about the grace and goodness of Jesus. But we also need to include in this the judgment of God or else the grace does not make any sense. People will not be interested if they don't hear that. And I would say that in my years of pastoral ministry, where I have talked to numerous people about their coming to know Jesus, time and time again, they talk about how God stirred them about wanting to escape his judgment. And that is what led them to place their faith and trust in Christ. In my life, that was the case. So let me ask you, who is someone that you should talk to? Who's someone in your life that the Lord has put in your path that you know you should be talking to, but we've just been too busy? We've been too preoccupied. Or we think, you know what, I'm sure they're okay. Let us pray for them and be faithful to share God's hope and God's means of rescue. God wants to use us as his instruments of mercy to a world that needs to hear about Christ. Will we join together in that great Endeavor Church? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, I pray even in this moment now, as your word has gone forth, And hearts and minds are thinking about these things, considering these things. 
that, Lord, if there's someone here today who's never believed in you, they would lay aside that pride, lay aside that apathy, and say, today is the day of salvation. I'm turning from my sins, and I'm going to believe in Jesus today. Lord, I pray that you would stir that in them so that today, indeed, is a day of celebration as people are brought into your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in our hearts as Christians to have a reaffirmation of who you are, our God of justice. That we would accept all of Scripture's teaching about you, your love, your power, your wisdom, and your justice. And Lord, may it deeply affect how we live that we would truly be broken about a world about us that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and also needs to hear about a God of perfect justice. And Lord, as we think as well about our own lives, God, we are grateful that you have saved us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was willing to take the cup of wrath on the cross so that all of our sins, past, present, and future, would be washed clean, and that we can gather together every Sunday and sing your praise for who you are and look forward to being in the presence of all of God's people one day and singing that new song that only the redeemed know. Lord Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for being willing to die in our place and enduring that wrath that was so awful. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.